How about I say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. We thank you for the country in which we live, that we have the freedom to study your word. We have the freedom to speak your word and to practice the Christian faith. Father, I pray for the leaders of our country, that you would turn their hearts toward you, that you would give us wisdom, that we might be a beacon of justice and peace in this world. I pray for everyone in this audience. Father, we bring many, many needs to you. We bring praises to you, and you are with us at our point of need and our point of joy in every situation. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as always, if you're used to being with us, if you will text your questions in during class, my associate, partner, wife of 31 years, we had our anniversary yesterday. Little did she know, 31 years ago, that she would have like a full-time job every Wednesday night, you know, and every Sunday morning, but uh, it was just that one moment of week. Here's a lesson, life lesson for you. One week moment, you could pay for it for 31 years, and that's what happened to my wife. Seriously, text your questions in. Laura kind of tries to collate those. We ask as many as we can and uh, would love to interact with you in that way. And that's probably the best way we can do that. Well, this series is called Overlooked. And it's because there, if you think about it, the red letters in your Bible. So many Bibles publish the words of Jesus in red. It's called a red letter edition of the Bible. That's helpful. You can kind of see where Jesus is speaking. And the red letters are in the Gospels in the New Testament, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You get a great record of Jesus' teaching. But if you make your way all the way to the end of the New Testament, the last book in your New Testament is called the Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, to the Apostle John. And you think, oh yeah, that's that book about the end times. It is. It's, it's a book that basically finishes the story of Jesus Christ. But when you go to chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, it's all red, all red letters. It's some of the most overlooked teaching of Jesus in the entire Bible. Jesus speaks to the apostle John, and he says, write down what I'm going to say to you and send it to these seven churches, which I'll show you in a few moments. Now, historically, Christians have always treated this just like every other teaching of Jesus. It was taught to people at the time, but it was meant for all believers at all times. And so the, the overlooked words of Jesus in the book of Revelation, we are going to study in this little four-week series each of those letters and what Jesus has to say to those churches and then take those lessons for modern Christians today. So that's our project over uh, the next few weeks. And let me start by opening up in chapter 1 before we get to the letters. And so this is the Apostle John opening the book, uh, the letter. It's just a big scroll. He just wrote down a long uh, copy of these visions that he is seeing. And he starts by explaining, this is how this came to me. And in chapter 1, he says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God 
and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, I'll show you where Patmos is in a minute, but it was a Roman penal colony. It was a place where you exiled troublemakers or criminals. And Christians at that time, about 95 AD, by the way, you'll hear this several times, but this happened, this vision came to John and he wrote it down about 95 AD. So right at the end of the first century, remember Jesus crucified, raised from the dead about 30 AD. So this is about 65 years later, after all the other letters in the New Testament have been written, and then this revelation comes to John to sort of finish the story. He says, I was on the island of Patmos and I was there because I was preaching about Jesus Christ. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And the voice said, and this is Jesus speaking, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the churches to send it to, to the church in the city of Ephesus, in the city of Smyrna, in the city of Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I'll show you where these uh, cities are. And he said, write to the churches that are in these cities. Well, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. This is a vision that he's seeing. I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone who looked like a son of man. That little phrase is messianic, but here it's probably, it looked like a human being. And so there's someone that looked like a human dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the surface, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So let me pause there for a minute. We want to parse this just a little bit, this introduction. He is seeing a vision, and this is a vision of Jesus. Now, does Jesus actually look like this? Is, you know, does he have white hair? Does he have a face that shines like the sun? Not particularly. What it amounts to is all of these things are symbolic. He saw this picture, this vision, but all of those things are symbolic and you're going to see them again because Jesus is going to use each of those things in the seven letters. It's very clever the way Jesus is going to use this image to make a point to the various churches. But you get the image, think about it as in the days before movies, this is how you described vivid imagery. So today, we would just make this into a movie and you would see some computer-generated character that looked like this. But the point he's trying to make is, I saw something that scared me to death. This was clearly a glorious being that I'm seeing here. A couple of things I should point out. These are just, just off to the side a little bit, but they're interesting. When he said, I was in the spirit, that is a really common way of saying, I saw a vision. I realized that this wasn't actually happening. Was it a dream? Was it a, a vision? We don't know that, but we know that he was seeing something that he knew was a vision. It's not there in front of me. God is showing me a picture. And it happened on the Lord's Day. That's interesting because Christians worship on Sunday. So in ancient times, Saturday was the seventh day of the week. 
Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. It was then, it is now. Christians worshiped on the first day of the week. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. That's the day we now call Sunday. And so by, by the end of the first century, you can tell that not only do they worship on that first day of the week on Sunday, it has been called now the Lord's Day. And everybody understands, oh, the Lord's Day, that's the first day of the week, that's Sunday. That's the day we set aside for God. And so that tradition in the church is very, very early that that happened. The other thing to notice here is that out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. The word of God, and when I say word of God, what I mean is the message of the New Testament. Before the New Testament was written, it was simply the message about Jesus Christ. If you were stand up and tell people, I want to tell you the story of Jesus. This actually happened. He's born to a virgin. He's raised. He teaches. Let me tell you what he taught. And then he was crucified, but he was raised from the dead so that we'd all have life. That's the word of God. That's the message. And so you get the New Testament together, and you, this is the communication of God to us, the inspired word of God or the message of God. That is often in the Scripture uh, called the sword, a sword. For example, in Ephesians, that's a, another letter in the New Testament, chapter 6, you get that famous passage about putting on the whole armor of God, and the word of God is the sword. It's the offensive weapon. Christians fight their battles not with real swords. This is symbolic of the truth of God, the word of God. Christians don't fight battles with swords. Christians fight battles with the truth about Jesus Christ. And so that's what this is trying to say. In Hebrews chapter 4, you also get the, that writer talks about the word of God is like a sharp double-edged sword that's able to split the truth from lies. In other words, it's the determinant of truth. And so you know that that symbol is talking about the Word of God, and that also identifies this character as Jesus as well. The other interesting thing here, which we're going to see in a minute, but I'll tell you now, the lampstands represent the churches. There are seven golden lampstands. And think about their lamps and their lit. And each one of those represents one of the churches. So that's going to become significant, but it, the imagery there is really consistent. The book of Revelation is a book of images. It's called apocalyptic literature, and that's a genre, a way of writing that used really well-known symbols to communicate a message. We still do that today. We just don't think about it that way. When you see uh, certain symbols, it calls up to you all kinds of associated images. Obviously, one of the most common in our culture is a cross. Now, if you went somewhere and people knew nothing about Christianity and you showed them a, a wooden cross, they'd go, oh, that's interesting. means nothing to them. To you, you see a cross. Oh, that has huge meaning. That is the symbol of the story of Jesus Christ and all this story comes back to you. Even in the secular world, you see a little swoosh. And what do you think of? you think of boycotting Nike. No, I'm just kidding. I made that up. I made that up. I made it up. But bottom line, you see a swoosh, and what do you think of? Oh, that 
is associated with running shoes and professional athletes. In other words, we still do this. Well, that's what's happening here, is these things are symbols that bring with them all kinds of ideas. And we'll see that play itself out all through the book of Revelation, which we will not do the entire book, but even amongst the seven letters, you'll see that happening. But one of the most interesting things this is kind of just a, a file this away because you see this all through the New Testament. But when, you, when he sees this vision, he sees the seven lampstands. Those are the seven churches, and Jesus is walking among the churches. That is very significant. What were the last words of Jesus to his disciples as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew? He gives a great commission. He said, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I've, I've taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And listen, guys, he said, I will be with you even to the end of time, even to the end of the age. And here he is symbolically saying, even though we are the churches in the world today, Jesus still walks among the churches. In other words, he's not far away from us this vision is telling us Jesus is very intimately interested in what's happening at Crossings Community Church and fill in the name of any other Christian gathering. So it's a powerful image there. Let's talk about these churches for a minute. These churches are in what's today Turkey. So this whole area, this was called Asia Minor. It was a Roman province because the Romans ruled the whole world then. But to us, actually even bigger than the area I've shown you on this map. That's modern-day Turkey. That area in ancient times was devoutly Christian and suffered a lot of persecution around this time, about 95 AD all the way till 300 AD. But Christianity was very strong here, and I'll explain why in a minute. But John was on this little island. It's about 10 miles long and about 6 miles wide, so it's not very big the island of Patmos, and he was sent there. When he left, he went to Ephesus. Church history, this is not inspired, this is church history, tells us that that's where he lived out the rest of his life and taught was in Ephesus. The seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Colossae. Those are towns in Asia Minor. And they're going to be in that order that I just traced them, and that order was probably the postal route. In other words, if you were going to travel to these churches, because this doesn't show you the roads, but the Romans built some roads, and some of these go through valleys. If you were going to visit these churches, which John probably did, just on a circuit of visiting churches in other towns, this is the order you would have gone to them. And this is the order that these letters are written to them. But each one of these towns are chosen not because there's anything particularly special about them. Scholars for a long time have tried to figure out, because there are churches all over this area, why those seven? We don't know why those seven. Some scholars would say, well, those seven churches... By the way, seven is a magical number in apocalyptic literature. It's, a, it's the number of completeness or wholeness. So they think, hey, it's, it's symbolic. Maybe these churches are symbolic of all churches at all times. It's kind of like the Enneagram. 
Okay, you guys don't really do the Enneagram, do you? Never mind. Anyway, it's kind of like, you know, these churches, every church in the world of all time fits into one of these seven categories. Well, maybe. And some scholars have said maybe that's what he's trying to say. Or there's a school of thought about the book of Revelation that these seven churches represent the different eras of humanity from the first coming of Christ to the second. We are going to approach it in the sense that there's nothing particularly special except Jesus wrote letters to these churches and the message is applicable to all of us, not just to them. Well, it finishes like this. And then when I saw him, he saw this image, I fell at his feet as though dead, which we just finished a study of the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things we saw in the Gospel of Mark, when people were confronted with the power of Jesus, whether it's healing, whether it's casting the demons into the swine, and the people were so afraid, they asked him, hey, please leave. Remember when he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee? His disciples were afraid. The natural human reaction when in the presence of holiness and power of God is to be scared to death and fall on your face. All through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, our God is truly an awesome God. Well, he fell on his feet. But then Jesus placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is the end of the gospel. Without this, there is no gospel of Jesus Christ. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. So Jesus is going to interpret this symbolism for him. He said, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. So he's interpreting this. He said, here's what's going on. I want to speak to these churches. And this imagery is how I'm going to communicate some things to them. I know you haven't had time to text this question in yet, so I will ask you for it. What is up with the angels of the seven churches? Who are these angels? That is a very interesting question, and I really don't know, so let's move on. So actually, I'm going to give you a couple of ideas. First of all, we think of angels as creatures that have wings and they're you know, kind of these heavenly beings. Well, that's half right. Don't know if they have wings, but they are indeed heavenly beings, beings that occupy the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. They are created by God, and the word angel in the original language just means messenger. In other words, the word angel appears in all kinds of Greek literature, not just the Bible. It would just be the word for I sent a messenger, I sent an angel. Well, just block out of your mind. We hear angel, we think of a specific thing. In that, it just meant a messenger. So some people think that the angels of the seven churches are the messengers to the seven churches that God is sending, like evangelists or preachers. Other people think that the messengers to the seven churches would be their senior pastors, if you will, their bishops, their ruling body, maybe their elders or something. But also some people think that the angels to the churches are the guardian angels of those churches. And I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, it's conjecture. 
I mean, no one knows exactly who they are except that he's going to deliver these messages through these messengers to these churches. There's some tantalizing hints in Scripture. So we're on a tangent now, so I'll make it short. But there's tantalizing hints in Scripture that, for example, in the Old Testament, book of Daniel, you get the idea that one of the archangels, Michael, is the angel who overlooks and oversees Israel, the Jewish people. So the idea of God dispatching messengers to look out for, to serve, to convey his messages is not an unusual idea. Now, our idea of a guardian angel, kind of like an angel who looks out for you and doesn't let anything bad happen to you, if that's the case, I want another one. I mean, I want to fire my guardian angel and get a new one. That's probably not a biblical idea, that there's a guardian angel watching out for you, making sure nothing happens. That's not so much a biblical idea. But for example, uh, the Bible talks about how when the law was delivered to Moses, it was delivered by a messenger from God, by an angel from God. And so angels form, they really do serve a purpose to fulfill God's messages and his purpose in our lives. The idea of a guardian angel probably means something a little different than you would just see in popular literature. Question? In Revelation 1.18, does the reference to Hades indicate something significant about the influence of Greek mythology on John? Say that again, because I didn't hear all of it. In Revelation 1.18, it just sort of broke up. I'm sorry. Does the reference to Hades indicate anything significant about the influence of Greek mythology on John? Yes. I'm glad you asked that question. So it says, Jesus, he said, I have the key to death and Hades. Yeah, let me, I'll, I'll just kind of go through this. This is, this is brilliant. God is so brilliant. So when God is communicating to us, in that time and place, he tends to communicate to us in ways that we understand, duh. But the point is, Christianity has always co-opted ideas, not to replace them, but to take an idea that you understand and use it to explain a new idea. So for example, heaven. In the New Testament, when it talks about the heavens, it talks about the place where God is, the Greek people of the time, the Roman people of the time, they had an idea of the heavens. They thought it was where the gods lived. And the writers of the New Testament go, yeah, no, actually your gods aren't real, but let's go with what you think. You know that place you call heaven? Let me tell you what it really is. Same is true of Hades. In the Greek world, Hades was a place and a person. They tended to personify ideas. But Hades was the god of the underworld, and Hades was the place, the underworld. Just to give you the short version of this, the Greeks, the Romans, etc., thought that after you died, you went to a place, and it wasn't necessarily good, it wasn't necessarily bad, it was just sort of bland. It was sort of like frosted flakes without the frosting. You know, it's like, you can live on it, but why? You know, why would you want to? So it was a place where the dead went to. And they didn't really have a very good idea of it. And in fact, most of the time in the New Testament, when you see the word hell in English, it's actually, most of the time, Hades. The reason is, they thought, well, this is where the dead go, and it's just that place, and 
the God Hades oversees it and doesn't treat them well and doesn't pay them very well. So what the New Testament does, what God does, he said, you know that place you think of as Hades? Yeah, that's the place where dead people go. He goes, yeah, hold that thought. Hades is actually, and then it begins to give the Christian idea of Hades. Hades is a place where, or hell as we call it, is the place where those who have been judged by God are sentenced to. So they take an idea that people understand that isn't right and repurpose it to be the truth. And if you notice in the New Testament, they take all kinds of ideas like that and use it as a jumping off place to describe what's actually true. So it, to answer your question, and that's a very astute question, it doesn't so much indicate an influence from Greek mythology as it does indicates that it's a really pretty brilliant way to communicate certain things to a culture that only understands Hades and we're gonna redefine it into a completely different concept. So good question, probably not an influence, probably more a co-opting of that term. Well, let's jump into Ephesus. The first letter is written to the churches in Ephesus and it's not a very long letter. It's seven verses, but there's a lot packed into it. So let me give you just a little history of the town of Ephesus. This is Paul, the apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to the churches in Ephesus called Ephesians. He wrote a letter to a lot of places. He started a lot of churches. And when I say he started a church, he didn't go into town and start a building campaign. He went into town and starts preaching the good news about Jesus and says, will you repent? Are you willing to, you know, to surrender your life to Christ? Will you trust him? People did, and that's a church. Where did they meet? People's houses, wherever they could meet didn't have buildings for quite a while, but they were a community of believers. So he, be, he, made, he built these churches by just converting people. This is a journey that he made between 53 and 57 AD. So he starts over here in Antioch, kind of his home base. That was the church that was sending him. He, think of him as a missionary, if you will, an evangelist. And he makes his way all the way over here to Ephesus. Ephesus is a big town in Asia Minor, and it's a big town because it's a big seaport. And that's how things moved in those days. In fact, the three biggest seaports in the ancient world was uh, Caesarea on the sea, which Herod the Great built, we've talked about that before, Alexandria in Egypt, and Ephesus. That, they were the big trade centers. And so Ephesus was a big city. It was an important city. And here are some pictures of uh, some of the ruins. But Paul started the church there in Ephesus. In fact, he spent more than two years there because it was such a big area and he could preach to so many people and have such a big impact. I'll show you some of the, the ruins are amazing in Ephesus. If it weren't for the fact that it's in Turkey and relations with Turkey aren't that good right now, we would be taking a trip to, uh, to see Ephesus right now. And the time will come, I'm sure, when we can. This is sitting in the theater. You're up in the theater. I'll show you a better picture of it later. And looking out toward the ocean. And you're saying, Terry, there's no ocean there. That is true. The ocean used to be right here. These are waves. Okay, so this, <laughs> this was the heart. Yeah, okay, hey, it's not my gifting, all right? So that is the harbor. 2,000 years ago, the harbor silted up, and today it's a mile away 
I mean, it's just 1,900 years of silting up, and so the harbor is actually a mile away from Ephesus. But I want you to imagine that this beautiful street right here with columns all down either side, magnificent, went right down to the harbor. And so Ephesus was sitting on the harbor. It was just a beautiful place. Let me just show you, even the ruins are still beautiful. This is one of the main streets here on the left. And all along the sides were temples, there were awnings, there were shops. Uh, you can see the facade of some of the temples here on the right. The rest of the buildings have been destroyed in earthquakes, but some of the facades are still here 2,000 years later. Some beautiful temples. And, of course, the roof is the first to go, but look at, look at the condition of that. And the workmanship is just beautiful, all this white marble Ephesus was a very rich, beautiful town. Some of the great public monuments and public buildings. I mean, the engineering, by the way, is, is pretty amazing in these places. Oh, it's one of my favorite people. This, this is uh, one of the major thoroughfares. And look at that. That street is still usable 2,000 years later. Are the streets in your neighborhood still usable? I don't think so. Really good road maintenance in those days. But in all seriousness, even with the ruins, you can tell, this was a magnificent city. They had a famous library. This is the front of the library. Obviously, a lot of the back has fallen down through earthquakes in 2,000 years, but the front is still there. This is the Library of Celsus, and it, contained, it was one of the great libraries of the world at that time. I mean, and even the, what's left of it is just gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. As you go towards the theater, you can see the bowl of the theater. Their theaters were always cut into natural hillsides. This one faces out towards the sea, which is great because if you're watching the play, the winds come in from the sea so it keeps you cooler and you can hear them really well because the wind's blowing in. You'll see them almost always set up this way. Uh, holds many thousand people in this, but you can see the huge thoroughfare. There'd be shops all along here. I think there was like a gap. I know there was a Gucci store over here. I mean, it was, I want you to think about it as in it was really neat. It was just top notch. It's a really urban center at the time. Here's another picture of it. If you were sitting up in about the middle, this isn't the top, this is what you'd be looking at. This is the stage. These are the backdrops, and on there would be built props, like a city or whatever. And then back here, you'll see all the storage area. It really is like a backstage area, and it was just magnificent. They had plays all the time. This was their entertainment. This was their television. They would kind of, you know, we binge watch Netflix. They binged watch plays, you know, tragedies, comedies, etc. Another view of that from the very top. And you can see, and then the ocean, by the way, was right at the end of this thoroughfare at that time. This would have been the sea out there. So it's just a gorgeous place, huge metropolitan area. You can see why Paul spent more than two years there talking to them. They were also very pagan. It was influenced, even though the city was Turkish, I mean, it's in what we would call Turkey, and the people there were Turkish, heavily influenced by Greek language. They spoke Greek and the Greek gods and goddesses, but Ephesus was especially known for the goddess Artemis. In the book of Acts, when Paul first went there, you can read in Acts chapter 19, 
what happened to him in Ephesus. He was dragged into this theater that we just saw for preaching. He stirred things up. When you read Acts 19, I want you to think of this. In other words, they got thousands of people in there, and they said, bring Paul in here. We are going to lynch this guy because he is preaching that our gods aren't really gods. That Artemis, our great goddess Artemis, who brings in all kinds of tourist money for us, this guy's preaching it. And they shouted for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I want you to remember that image in your head when you read that part of Acts. It's just amazing. And so here's the image of goddess Artemis. Not, this did not come from Ephesus, by the way, but this is uh, from other places in Turkey. And then they built a huge temple, which doesn't exist today. So these are two artist renditions, and this is actually uh, rebuilt because there are descriptions of the temple. Magnificent, huge temple. People came from all over the world to see it because it was so magnificent, and then to worship Artemis there. So it was a very pagan city, very cosmopolitan city. I mean, when you have that kind of trade, you have all, you have a melting pot of cultures and beliefs and ideas. And in the middle of this is a church, a group of believers, and they are wrestling with the culture and the pressure from the culture. You could tell this story about the church in America today. The church in America, I know that probably still 70 plus percent of Americans say they believe in God. I know that a high percentage would say they're Christian. But if you think about people that are actually following Christ, actually transformed lives trying to follow Christ, that's a relatively small number of people compared to the population of America. Let's just stick with America for a moment. That's exactly the situation these people were in. And it wasn't easy. And we see it's getting harder and harder to be a devoted a Christian in America today. They're in the same situation. So let's go to the letter and see what does, what does Jesus have to say to them in the year 95 AD when he writes to them. Here's what he says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So he's going to pick up these images. He says, I know your deeds, I know your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles. In other words, these are teachers that are teaching things that aren't true about they say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian teacher, and they're teaching things that aren't true, who claim to be apostles, but they are not. And you have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. So let me pause there at that point and talk about what is Jesus, what's the big thing he wants to say to them? He said, look, I know you have a lot of false teachers. I know there are people there trying to pervert the truth. Remember? This is Jesus is crucified and raised in 30 AD. The apostle Paul was there in 53 to 57. He wrote a letter back to them a few years later. That's the letter that you have in your New Testament. Now it's 30 some years after that. He said, and in that time, there have been a lot of false teachers teaching you different things for various reasons, but you have been testing them and you've held on to the truth. The church in Ephesus is interesting. I want to show you a little timeline here of some letters. 
So the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Ephesus inspired by the Holy Spirit in 62 AD. Jesus is dictating a letter to Ephesus, obviously inspired at the words of Jesus, in 95 AD. And then we happen to have a letter from a guy named Ignatius. Ignatius was a student of the Apostle John. He lived uh, in, uh, well, I guess I'm going to show you him here in a second. But basically, he lived from about 50 AD, and then it's, we don't know when he died. It's either 108 or 140. So he either died at 58 years old or about 90 years old. Long story, but uh, Ancestry.com is a little fuzzy on that. So, but bottom line, he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. And what I want to do is step through this just a little bit. So Paul's writing to the Ephesians. Jesus is dictating to them a generation later. Think of it in terms of generations. It's as though you, Paul came and we all became Christians when he came and told us the good news. 30 years later, our kids or our grandkids are reading this letter from Jesus dictated to them, to the church here in Oklahoma City. And then another generation later, Ignatius writes a letter to the congregation that's here at that time. And I want to step through it a little bit because this idea of false teachers is a big deal. It was big in that time and it's big in our time. All you have to do is walk into a Christian bookstore and you can see all kinds of teaching from all kinds of people and you don't have to be that much of a scholar to realize all of these things can't be true at the same time. And so we have teachers teaching things today, just like they did, that aren't really true. They don't fit with the teaching of the apostles. So the first thing, let's go back to the time of Paul. When he, this is Acts 20. So this is when he's on his way to Rome. He's going to eventually be killed uh, in about eight more chapters in the book of Acts. But he stops and he talks to the elders of the church in Ephesus. I mean, they dock there and the elders come down and he says to them, look, I'm never going to see you guys again. I'm on my way to Rome. God's sending me there. I'm going to preach before Caesar and I will probably die. And sure enough, he does about eight years later. He says, I don't think I'll see you guys again. So I want to warn you. What does he want to warn them? He says this, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, the whole truth of God. Keep watch over yourselves, elders, and all the flock, all the people that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And don't read overseers as rulers. Read overseers as shepherds. That kind of an idea. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, even pastors, even elders will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Once you get a feel for how old this is, this is Paul. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. So Paul tells them in the early 60s, watch out. There will be people that will want to corrupt the truth of Jesus Christ. Fast forward to what we just read. Jesus says, I know how hard you have worked to hold on to the truth that people have come to you to teach things that weren't true and you have said that is not the truth. So, generation later, they're still holding on to that. 
Let's fast forward a little bit to another generation. This is Ignatius. He was killed for preaching, either 108 or 140, and he studied under John. And he wrote a letter to Ephesus. Now he's writing it in the next generation. And he says this, For there are some who are accustomed to carrying about the name maliciously and deceitfully while doing other things unworthy of God. In other words, these false teachers are teaching as though they are teaching in the name of Jesus and Christians, but they're not. You must avoid them like you would avoid wild beasts. They are mad dogs that bite by stealth. You must be on your guard against them, for their bite is hard to heal. In other words, once you get this untruth, it's very hard to stamp it out. And a little later in the letter, but I have learned that certain people from elsewhere have passed your way with evil doctrine, with untrue statements. So the struggle in the church in Ephesus at that time seems to be trying to resist the idea of watering down the gospel or accommodating the gospel to the culture at the time. In other words, taking the truth of God and bending it out of shape in some way. And I think that's very relevant today. I think, in fact, all through church history that's been relevant. We are Christians, and this is something I've said to you before, and I just want you to think about this a little bit. I know that people come to Christ because of a variety of reasons, and there's nothing wrong with that. They find that they can be forgiven, and the load of guilt in their lives can be taken away. I mean, what a powerful reason to say, Lord, I need you. You know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? And so that's powerful. Sometimes people come to Jesus and say, I made a mess of my life. I don't want to be in charge anymore. You will be the Lord of my life. There are a lot of reasons. But the, I'm going to suggest to you, though, that the only reason to stay a Christian is because it's true. The only reason to stay a Christian is because it's true. Because nowhere in the New Testament does it guarantee that all your problems will be solved. Right? I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. Not exactly a great life by our standards. If you're into comfort, you do not want to follow that guy. Jesus Christ, if you're into comfort, you do not want to follow him. So my point is, Christianity isn't, it may be appealing because of the weight of our guilt and sin, and that's what sin does to us. It destroys us, and Christ will set us free. But the only reason to stay a Christian is because you believe this is true. Christians believe in absolute truth. There is a truth about the universe. In fact, there are all kinds of stories out there about what's true about the universe. But we believe that Jesus Christ told us the truth. And so this idea of truth is essential to this. The idea of us holding to the truth. That's why this is such a big deal. Jesus could have said, hey, you guys have got some doctrines wrong, but ah, it's not that big a deal. You know, and I'm not talking about trivial things. I'm talking about essential things. I'm not talking about you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I'm not talking about exactly how are the end times going to turn out. I'm talking about the essential items of the faith. Are there a bunch of different ways to be saved? Can I work hard enough to be saved? Can I be a good person and I'll be saved? Those are essential ideas to Christianity about the truth about God and the truth about us. But he's saying there, it's really powerful then and now, Preserving the truth of the gospel is critically important to Jesus Christ. The truth matters. And that's what he's saying to Ephesus. And it sure looks like that church was very faithful to hold on to the truth. 
So let me pause there for a second and see if we have a question. How do we recognize false teachers in the church today? Great question. How do we recognize false teachers in the church today? God has been very gracious to us to give us his message. Eugene Peterson translated the Bible, and he called it the message. And there's a really good reason for that. I actually paraphrased the Bible, but leave that aside for a minute. The point is, he called it the message. That's what it is. The Bible, the Word of God, is God's message to us. We believe that the Spirit inspired these words. In other words, this is what God wanted to say to you, is what is written down in here. Inspiration can mean a lot of things, uh, but it basically would take a scholar to misunderstand this. And the point is, God wanted to communicate with you, and this is what he wanted to say. We test everything that we hear in this world against the truth of God's message to us. And so we identify false teachers the same way in the Old Testament. They talked about false prophets, that false prophets would come, and they would tell you things for their own benefit, and they would say things that really didn't come from God. How would you know? Test it against the truth. Go look at the law of Moses. Go listen to the inspired prophets and say, wait a minute, this doesn't jive very well. Same in the New Testament. When you get here doctrines today, go to your New Testament. This is literally the message God gave to us to help us live out what it looks like to live the truth in our lives. So I think the Bible is how God has done that for us. In the early church, they don't have the Bible. And it was a little harder, but what did they do? They heard the teaching of the apostles. They saw the book of Revelation. The Ephesians read their letter. They just went straight to the local library, Xeroxed 100 copies, and sent it to the other churches. And say, the apostle Paul is telling us this, that the Lord wants us to avoid sexual immorality and gossip and envy and greed and strife. Okay, this is God telling us how he wants us to live as children. So even before it was written down, people repeated over and over, what are the teachings? What did Jesus say? What did Paul say? What did John say? These were the ones who were with him, who were commissioned to come teach us. So it's always testing it against the truth of God. And we're fortunate enough to have the New Testament. Well, we call the New Testament as God's message to us. Great question. We should be people of the word. In fact, uh, Paul's traveling in Acts. Many of you may remember this, but the book of Acts is simply the acts of the apostles. In other words, it tells you about these trips he made and what happened and his preaching. And it talks about he goes to this one town and they, they just don't like what he's saying and they run him out of town. Actually, that happened to him in every town. But then he goes to another town and he said, these people, the name of the town was Berea, he said, they were more noble than the people in the other town and they searched the scriptures, which means the Old Testament, those were the writings that they had, to see if those things Paul was saying was true. And we should be just like the Bereans. Is when we hear that, we should search the scriptures to see if these things are true. Great question. Okay? So, rest of this letter. He goes on. He says, so I want to commend you for holding on to the truth, even in the face of people that are trying to convince you otherwise. Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. In other words, turn around, change your ways. 
Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, now this is not your cuddly Jesus. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. We sometimes take for granted that because we're a church, God's Holy Spirit is here. This is a little sobering. It says, listen, if you won't stick to the truth, if you won't repent from the ways you're going off track, don't assume that I will always be with you. I won't always support what you are doing. There's a reason to hold to the truth. He says, but you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then here's a standard formula to end all the letters. If he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a, basically a saying that means this. Pay attention, this is important. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So let's talk about two things here. One is you've forsaken your first love. Now that's not obvious what that means because they're doing really well. They're holding to the truth. If they're holding to the truth, then what are they doing? They're loving one another. They're forgiving. They're compassionate. They're living in community. They're not lying to one another. They're weeding out the gossip and the envy and out of their life. They're holding to the truth. Most scholars, and I agree for a lot of reasons that I won't go into here. If you just look at some of the other scripture, uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, in, at the end times, people's love will grow cold. Uh, and as persecution comes, you tend to shrink in. I think they were doing a good job interacting with each other, but what they weren't doing that they did originally is they weren't taking the gospel out. Because you see, the reason that all of Turkey, Asia Minor at that time, was so solidly Christian for the next 200 years is because when Paul was in Ephesus for those two to three year period, they sent missionaries out all over and started all those churches. Paul didn't do that all himself. He's preaching in Ephesus, and some young man or some people would say, hey, we should go. i got a brother-in-law who lives over in Smyrna or Pergamum or one of the other cities. I'm going to go tell him about this. He needs to know this. They would go out and preach, and there would be a church. They were very evangelistic. They were on fire to spread this good word. And I, I am persuaded that what he's saying here is not you guys don't love each other anymore. He says, no, you're holding on to the truth. He says, but you have left your first love, and your first love was to do what I told you, go into all the world and teach everyone to become disciples. And so I think the persecution, in my view, has made them shrink in, and they've become a holy huddle. And if we aren't careful, that can happen to us too, right? We just say, you know, the world's really ugly out there, and those people are mean, and they do not like us very well. Let's just all huddle up here inside the walls and wait for Jesus to come, and we'll watch the fireworks from the roof, you know, as, as God destroys all these other people. That's not our mission, is it? God said, no, get out there and tell them. They're lost. These are people, broken, lost people, and they need to hear this good news. They may not accept this good news. He says, you leave that to me, but you go teach them. So I think this, this point he's saying is, is, listen, get back out there and do what I told you. It's like having a football team, and you come out, and it's in the middle of the game, and they're all sitting on the bench. It's like, get on the field and play the game, right? And I think that's what Jesus is saying to them is, go do what you did at first. Don't lose your zeal for evangel. Let me put it in modern terms. Don't lose your enthusiasm for evangelism. 
That's probably a good message for us as well, frankly, is that we, we, we always need to rekindle the fire to not only say, ah, I was lost and Jesus found me, but then to follow it up and say, and I need to go tell all the other lost people that I know. Question? Yes. Uh, do false prophets always know that they are teaching falsehoods, or are they Christians who have been misled? Good question. Do false prophets, false teachers, um, do they know that they're teaching false things? My experience, I can, all I can tell you there is there's nothing in the Bible that necessarily that I know of that says this is the way it always is. My experience has been you do see both. There's a difference between being wrong and being evil. In other words, you can be wrong about certain doctrines, and it, okay, you're wrong. And there's not like there's a test to get into heaven to say, oh, you missed that one little point, you know, and so you can't get in. Well, we know that's not. We're saved by grace through faith, not through filling out the test right. But truth does matter, doesn't it? Romans chapter 6, it matters what you do. I think some people are misled. In fact, in the Bible, you'll see a little bit of an example of this. In the book of Acts, once again, which is the story of the early church, there was this brilliant guy named Apollos. He was a lawyer, but don't hold that against him because he became a Christian and he was out preaching. I'm just kidding. I'm going to get emails. All right, so bottom line, Apollos was brilliant, and he was persuaded. And so he's out teaching the repentance of John. He's out teaching that, hey, you need to repent because the kingdom of God is coming. Well, when he gets to a town where a young couple, Aquila and Priscilla, see him and hear him, they go, wow, he's a great speaker. He definitely understands it, but he doesn't really know the rest of the story. And so they take him in and they fill him in and he goes, oh my goodness, I had not heard. So Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he's raised from the dead. And now he goes to preach that. So he simply needed to be taught. He needed to be taught that, hey, here is the rest of the story or here is the truth. There are people though that teach for other reasons. They teach to justify themselves. I mean, we're the greatest rationalizers. Human beings, we're called homo sapiens, you know, the wise man. We should be called homo rationalize everything. In other words, I can basically come up with a good reason to do what I want to and tell you why. Oh, it's, it's completely reasonable and justified. We do a lot of things out of self-interest. My experience has been a lot of false teachers start with the way they want things to be and bend the truth to that. And that's what's something we all need to be careful of, is no one approaches the word without some kind of bias. But bias can be eliminated if we will ruthlessly work at letting the Scripture say what it wants to say and be what it wants to be. And I'll tell you a great way to do that. Tim Keller says this, if your God never disagrees with you, you're probably worshiping a God that you made up. So in other words, when we read the Scriptures, all of us should be convicted. That's a Christian way of saying we should read things and go, you know what, I don't think I'm on track there. I need to, quote, repent, which just means I need to change my mind. I need to reorient myself on this. All of us should experience that at some point in time. So I do think that false teachers, sometimes it's intentional, and other times it, it's not. And if it's not, you would assume that there are people of goodwill who would be willing to reason together and go to the Scripture and let's, let's come study together. People that are doing it for other reasons typically will not study with you. Another question? What were the practices of the Nicolaitans? Perfect segue. Let's talk about the Nicolaitans. First of all, 
no one actually knows who the Nicolaitans were. In other words, it has not come down to us <clears throat> specifically. There are all kinds of interesting theories, interest of time. I'm just going to leave that out. But it appears, because they're going to show up again later, it appears, and I think extremely likely, the Nicolaitans were a certain group, probably called that probably because of their founding teacher, probably named Nicholas, would be my guess. But basically, it is a teaching, a false teaching. They would say, we are Christians, but let me tell you, you guys are misunderstanding some things. You actually can do a lot of the stuff. I know Paul told you you can't be involved in sexual immorality. I know Paul told you that you can't worship other gods. Yeah, it's, he's a fundamentalist just between you and me. He's really out there on the right wing of this thing. Let me tell you what you can do. You can participate in some of this. In other words, they were compromising with their culture. A lot of reason to do this, as a matter of fact. Very, very powerful heresy, false teaching. And I'll tell you why it's powerful. Because, and you're going to recognize some parallels here. Christians were persecuted in 95 AD. Christians were being persecuted, certainly in Asia. I mean, in Turkey, this area of these churches. You're going to, see, you're going to hear about it in some of the other letters. But here's how they were persecuted. Christians were always persecuted first economically and socially before they were persecuted by oh, being thrown into jail or being whipped and beaten or being killed. When I say to you Christians are persecuted, you may think of like some places like China today or North Korea. You're going to get thrown into jail and you may lose your life. They may come and bulldoze your church and they may arrest you. That's persecution. But persecution started historically and now social ostracism. That should ring really true to you. You pick up a newspaper today, you're going to be hard-pressed to read anything good about Christians. Is it a stereotype? Is it a straw man? Sure. But the point is Christians are hateful and they're phobics of every variety. Xenophobic, homophobic, you know, any phobic you can think of, we, we're haters. You think, wow, we are? We didn't think we were. But the point is social ostracism and economic ostracism. So the way it worked in those days, a little different today, but the way it worked in those days is the trade guilds. I mean, if you were then, you were not a computer programmer. You were a plumber or you worked on air conditioning. Or in other words, it was a, it was a manual economy in those days, right? So you were in some trade guild. You went down to the union hall and you'd pull off, oh, yeah, looks like Terry needs his air conditioner fixed. I'm going to go get this done. Well, the trade guilds were associations. It was, it was a good thing, nothing wrong with it, but they all had their like patron god or goddess. And they'd have their meetings and they would have a feast or a festival and they would kind of worship their god and say, you know, basically Artemis, you're the goddess of the silversmiths and please bless our business and help us to grow and let fiscal year 2020 be 10% better than fiscal year 2019. I mean, that's the way trade guilds work. Well, Christians were like, we don't worship Artemis. We're not going to pray. So what happens? They go, seriously? Not a very good member of the union. Let's just make sure old Joe over there doesn't get any work. And that's how it happened. 
They were socially and economically ostracized because they wouldn't participate in the pagan things. And every, they were like, what's your problem? Yeah, I believe in all kinds of gods, but bottom line, I want to get work here. So come on. They go, no, there's just one God, and I need to hold to the truth. And they go, well, then you're going to starve, buddy. And that's what happened. Think about it. I heard today, uh, I won't name the bank, but there's a bank that will no longer loan money to certain kinds of businesses because they take a position on a social issue that is not progressive. Not picking on Democrats, Republicans, whatever, but my point is, what is that? That is economic ostracism. And Christians were persecuted in that way. So what were the Nicolaitans saying? They were saying effectively, listen, I know Paul said there's only one true God, and, and hey, I believe that too. But since you and I know that Artemis really isn't a goddess, we're just going to go over there and eat. And yeah, we're going to bow down a little bit. But bottom line, we're going to take care of our families. And you know God wants you to take care of your family. I certainly wouldn't want my car repossessed because I couldn't make the payments. In other words, they're telling people to compromise the truth to fit into the culture. And Jesus is saying, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In other words, they're insidious false teachers. They don't come and say, you know what, Jesus isn't really the Christ. He really wasn't born of a virgin. He really didn't, wasn't raised from the dead. Oh, they're not teaching that. They're just teaching you to compromise what you believe in little ways. And Jesus says, I hate their teaching, and so do you, and you have held to the truth. That one is particularly poignant to me because the most effective false teaching is largely true. I mean, if you want to tell a lie, I mean, whether this is in politics or anything else, Take a big old dose of truth and bend it somewhere. The biggest lies have a lot of truth in them and just one false thing. And so you swallow all the truth and you get the falsehood with it. That's what Ignatius was saying. He said, those bites are hard to heal. What did he mean is once you swallow the truth and this lie in it, it's really hard to get that out of your head. And so Jesus says, I hate that. It's manipulative. It's satanic in the sense that Satan, very smart, he's not going to have somebody come in and say, listen, I'm an atheist, and I want to convince you not to be a Christian. That's not how people lose their faith. People lose their faith by making a little compromise, then another compromise, and then another compromise. And I think that's as timely for us as it was for them. So the message in a nutshell of this letter to the Ephesians is, and I think it's just as timely for us, is Hold to the truth and never lose your zeal to go share it with other people. We will share it with grace and love, but we'll hold to the truth and never lose your zeal to share that with somebody. So, here's your assignment. And if you don't come back, I'll know you didn't do it. <laughs> we have facial recognition technology in this. Did I tell you that? We, we are watching you. I'm just kidding. Seriously, though, Think about this a little bit. These are words of Jesus that are spoken to us. They're just typically overlooked. And he's saying, keep holding to the truth. You're doing a great job. But don't forget, I really care about those people out there that are lost. Say something to them this week. Okay? Next week, a little bit different situation. Jesus is going to speak to the church at Smyrna and Pergamum. And I'm really interested in showing you Pergamum fascinating town. Jesus says Pergamum is the place where Satan has his throne. 
So next week, we visit Hades. I'll see you then.